welcome to the real life show living with a chronic illness we are your hosts cassie and chelsea i'm cassie a single mom living with a chronic illness who is extremely passionate about living a full and happy life and i'm chelsea i have a passion for helping people to put themselves first and to be the best version of themselves each and every day we came together to create the spoonie hub an uplifting community that offers resources guidance support and offers you the space to be yourself be heard and feel understood. We hope that by providing tips and tricks from experts, we help people with chronic conditions to thrive and live the lives they've dreamed of. This show is not only for those who live with a chronic illness or disability, but their friends, family, spouses, and just anyone else existing on the earth. Our goal is to normalize having a chronic condition by sharing real stories with real people and to show the world how relatable those everyday struggles can be. There's a little something in here for everyone. And a special shout out to our community at the Spoonie Hub. Thanks to your contributions, we are able to provide flexible work opportunities for Spoonies, donate to our nonprofit to help provide wellness treatments for those who need it, and be able to transcribe our podcast to make it more accessible for all. To learn more, visit our show notes. Enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to today's Airy Changemaker episode making a difference, making a change, incredible humans. Here they are on this show for you to listen to. Today, the wonderful human is Katie Long. Katie is an MD, PhD student at the University of Chicago. She is getting her PhD in computational neuroscience, and the focus of her research is in our sense of touch. Her lab tries to understand how our nerves and our brain make sense of the objects and surfaces we touch and grasp. In addition to understanding these neural codes, they work to find ways to restore sensation to those who have lost it due to surgery or spinal cord injury. A couple years ago, she began work on a collaborative project aimed at helping women who undergo mastectomy, a surgery to remove the breasts to treat or prevent cancer. Many women with mastectomy lose sensation in their breasts, and this project centers on creating a device which they have been calling the bionic breast. They will interface with women's nerves to restore the sensation that is lost. We had a ton of fun talking to Katie. Her project is super, super cool. She is the smarty pants of all smarty pants. And we just had a really fun time talking a little bit of science. Don't worry, there's not too much science stuff. Like, my knowledge of neuroscience is very little and I was able to understand all of it. So if I can keep up, so can you. And it was just, it was very interesting to hear Katie's scientific approach of what they're doing to help this problem that's not talked about very often. I mean, mastectomies are actually kind of a common thing out there in the world for various reasons and losing sensation after that procedure is also, again, not uncommon. So it was really fun talking to Katie about this project and the implications it could mean for other projects in the future. So we hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's episode. We have Katie Long with us. Hi, Katie. Hi. Katie is another one of the Airy Changemakers. We're so excited to be able to sit down and get to talk to you for like a long period of time and hear all about you and all the amazing things that you're doing because your project is so freaking cool, Katie. (laughs) Thanks. I'm excited to be here. Yay. Well, let's just dive in. Katie, can you tell our listeners a little bit about who you are, your story, and how you've gotten to where you are today? Yeah, for sure. Um, so my name is Katie and I am in my, oh, it's hard to remember now, seventh year of my MD PhD program at the University of Chicago. 
props so, to you. I barely yeah. got through my master's degree and then someone was like, do you want to get your PhD? I was like, no. <laughs> that was the right decision. <laughs> <laughs> so props to you for just continuing on. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Um, it's definitely been challenging, but there have been really bright spots that make it worth it. And I'm hoping to graduate in June this year, just with the PhD portion. Uh, so I'll still have three more years of med school. So it really, <laughs> I'm going to be in school for a really long time. About the lifetime of a Mac, I guess. As we've been. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But right now it's feeling pretty exciting because I'm, you know, ending the PhD and it's nice just having any kind of change <laughs> coming up to look forward to. I think the hardest part of being in school for this long has just been like not being sure when I'm going to wrap up and the like guidelines are not exactly clear. And so it's been a long time, but it's it's been really cool working on the projects that we've been working on. Um, so before I dive into the ARI project, I want to talk a little bit about what our lab does generally, just as some context. Awesome. Um, so before I started grad school, I actually mostly did, um, well, I'm in neuroscience, so my PhD is in computational neuroscience. But prior to starting grad school, I studied addiction. Um, I was just really interested in like how people's early life experiences and how particular neural circuits give rise to addiction. And I thought that the kind of neuroscience I would always really like is the neuroscience that focuses on differences between people. Um, So not just finding like an overall explanation for everyone, but looking at specific differences across people, as well as looking at like emotional and affective disorders. Um, That's so interesting. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Chelsea and I are both giant nerds. Yes. And so while we are not going for our PhD. We do find all of that kind of stuff fascinating, yeah. you know, and like to read up articles or listen to podcasts. And so I just think that's got to be so rewarding on like a daily basis for you to learn so much about human beings and yet obviously exhausting to do all of that all the time <laughs> and use your brain all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually... So I'm sort of getting to this, but what I do now, I work with monkeys for the most part. Like that's what my PhD research is on. So so fun. It Mm -hmm. sounds really cool. And like a lot of times it is really enjoyable working with the monkeys. Like I have one monkey that I've been working with for the past six years now. So I like know him super well. We spend, you know, half the day together every day, even on like most weekend days. (laughs) So like I know him better than I know most people in my life. But that also gets like really exhausting in its own way. Like monkeys are not like little rodents where you can just sort of like put them in a box and they'll do their thing. Like you definitely have personality clashes at times or they like don't like Mondays and they're in a bad mood. Cute. Oh my gosh. That makes me feel better that monkeys also don't like Mondays. (laughs) I'm like, okay, it's not just like a human thing. It's like Mm -hmm. a just universal thing. Yes. Especially when we like, so we have them do these tasks. And so they're kind of like working throughout the week with us. And so they get the weekend off often, or at least one day of the weekend off. So Monday's like their day back to the grind, I think. (laughs) That is so funny. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so in undergrad, I studied neuroscience and focused on addiction. And then when I came to grad school, Um, I really planned on continuing to study addiction, and that's part of why I chose UChicago. Um, But a lot of different things happened where different professors moved and just my interest sort of shifted. And so I actually ended up in a lab that studies the sense of touch, which was a huge pivot for me. I had never done sensory neuroscience. I never thought I would. I never thought I would work with monkeys. Like, it was all 
very different. Um, but it's been super cool because I think a lot of MD PhD students and a lot of grad students in general uh, who are really interested in like human health and want to work on things that have applications for people end up working on projects where you hope that one day the discovery you've made can help people. And, and I think that part of science is incredibly important. Like we could not have the therapeutics and the treatments that we have if people didn't do that kind of work. Um, but what's neat about our lab is we actually work with people and we can actually translate things pretty quickly from like things we learn in a monkey right into a human. Wow. Um, so it's it's been really rewarding being able to actually talk to patients and say like, how do you think this would help? Um, we work with one spinal cord injury patient right now who has lost most sensation from the neck down. He can still feel a little bit in his hands, um, but we actually put electrodes in his brain and he can feel through stimulation of those electrodes as if it were on his own hand. And so being wow. able to, to work on things like that is just really, really awesome. That's, That's incredible. fascinating. Yeah. The brain is just it, the amount of stuff I feel like we don't know about the brain is mind-boggling, knowing that it's the thing that makes us learn. So I'm starting to get really, like, <laughs> metaphysical, and my brain can't follow those thought processes anymore. <laughs> it is, yeah, it is it's wild incredible. that, like, our brain doesn't understand our brain. Like, yeah, that, okay, uh, yeah. That is what I was trying to say. Thank you, Katie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's yeah, neuroscience is, is really wild, and, like, I think the longer I've been in the field and the more I've learned, the more I realize like we really don't know much. Like we've made huge strides, like not, not to say that neuroscience hasn't come a really far away because we have, but the kinds of discoveries that we make often focus either on like particular small circuits in the brain or on individual cells, which is what we do for the most part. Um, but we don't really have this clear holistic picture of what the brain does. We know what brain areas do. We know what certain cells do, but putting that all together is, is a whole nother thing. So mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it is definitely really fascinating because it seems so central to the human experience, mm -hmm. right? Like everything yeah. about our perceptions and our ideas and our emotions, it's all there, but we don't really understand it very well. I was just going to say like, Katie, since you made that big switch from addiction to like sensory, have you really liked that change? Or has it been kind of like, uh, it's okay? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> when I first made the switch, it was mostly because the person that I was currently working for was thinking about moving out to Seattle. And I'm, you know, based in Chicago and I didn't want to have to start over in a new city. And so at the time I thought, you know, this is cool. Like I have all this experience with addiction, with working with rodents, maybe I can learn really rigorous computational techniques in this monkey lab and bring those kinds of techniques back into the addiction field. Cause the, the type of addiction research that I had done didn't really focus on that. Definitely there are some labs throughout the country that do, but I was like, this is great. Like I'll get this really interdisciplinary approach. Um, but as time went on, I think I, I didn't inherently have this fascination with sensory neuroscience and some people really do. But for me, like I would, I was just obsessed with how addiction might arise and what goes wrong in the brain and what we could do about it. And I, I was not obsessed with like, how do I feel the edge of a cup as I grasp it? Like, it's just not a right. thing I really thought about day in and day out. Um, but now I do <laughs> because when you become an expert on something and you understand what questions are still there, I don't, 
I mean, maybe it's just like my science wired brain and it sounds like you two are kind of the same way. I just can't like let that go. Like once I know what questions are there, I become obsessed. And so now I really do love sensory neuroscience. And I think like I was mentioning before, one of the really great things is with addiction, (laughs) I think people talk about like, okay, we figured out that it's, you know, these particular cell types that express this gene in these particular brain areas and they, they narrow it down, which is great. But from my perspective, like, okay, what are you going to do about that? Like, you can't right. just go and change that circuit now. Like, it's still going to come down to therapy and social networks and trying to prevent certain experiences early in someone's life. And so it's still a lot of, like, societal and medical things that you can do, but not it's, it's not as straightforward as, like, we understand how this computer is broken. Let's just fix it, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's too complicated. Whereas with sensory neuroscience, if somebody has an amputation or a spinal cord injury, we can more or less plug into those nerves or plug into that brain area and just stimulate because you're not trying to convey really complicated ideas. You just want the neuron that's responsible for feeling touch here to be stimulated when the bionic hand touches that. And, And that's a much more straightforward problem to solve. Yeah. So from a therapeutic standpoint now, I think... I think there are really interesting questions in addiction neuroscience, but I don't see myself going back to that now because I think there's a lot of room for technology and neuroscience advances specifically around like sensory components. Mm-hmm. So, so I love it now. <laughs> That's so interesting. I mean, my grandmother was in a wheelchair. She was paralyzed from like the waist down um, from a spinal cord injury. And so like just, because I have that like personal connection. I'm like, Oh yeah. Like being able to stimulate certain nerves to be able to give sensations where there wouldn't have been before, like would have could have been really, really cool for not only my grandmother, but like so many other people that are experiencing that for various different reasons. Yeah. Yeah. There, there are a lot of reasons why sensation is important, not only for feeling like your body is your own, which like in the field, we talk about embodiment of either like prosthetic limbs or even your own body in the case of a spinal cord injury. Um, So it's really important to feel, but also like, especially with the hands, which is what we focus on. There are labs that work on lower limbs, um, especially with your hands. Like Mm -hmm. you, it's really difficult for people who can control a bionic limb so they can move it with their thought alone. You can put electrodes in motor cortex and they can, you know, I'm going to hold this up. I know not everyone will be able to see, but they can reach for a cup and they can, if they're watching they can guide their hand to it and grasp it. But those same individuals, because they can't feel when they touch have to watch really closely. They don't know how much force they're exerting. And so they talk about being afraid of like picking up their children because they're afraid they're going to squeeze too hard or you can't like pluck a grape right? Like sensation in those cases is critical for function. Mm-hmm. You really can't do a lot without being able to also feel what you're touching. Yeah. I had never thought about it. It's not just that, like, if you're going to go pick up a cup, it's not just putting your hand in the right spot. It's also applying enough pressure to actually pick the cup up, but also not break the cup. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And I had never thought about that, but yet if you can't feel through your fingers, yet you can't know that. Yeah, you, Right. Yeah, there's a, a video we often show at the beginning of our talks about what we work on, where they had numbed people's fingertips and then asked them to light a match. And people really struggle because grasping it with the right amount of force in order to actually strike right. the match, it yeah. just like drop it or have trouble picking it up in the first place. It's it's really important being able to feel what you're Yeah, touching. that is such an interesting exercise. I mean, even thinking 
back to like when you go to the dentist and you have numbing and then you can't even drink water with just one like part of your lip numb. Right. You know, I, I did, I was getting some dental work done and I had to teach after, and I didn't know it was going to be quite that numb. And so I went and I was, I was just like drooling out of my mouth. Yeah. Had no idea until I would feel the drool, like at the very tip of my chin where I had feeling again. Right. <laughs> and I was like teaching Pilates and I was like, Oh my God, I'm so sorry. You know, and it was a nightmare. And, but that was like one of the first times that I think I had numbness in, in such a weird specific spot. And then obviously had to like try and live normal life yeah. and couldn't even drink water. And even, um, like when I had my son, I happened had an epidural. And so I was numb, you know, from essentially the waist down. And I went, I went like almost 30 hours without an epidural. And then I was like, give me the drugs. <laughs> so I, then I had the epidural. And then I remember it was like the wee hours of the morning and my newborn baby was in the little, um, little tub thing next to me. And I was in the bed and I wanted to grab him. He was too far away, even though he was like six inches from me. And I could not get my body to move, you know? And I felt like I was trapped in this bed because it is so effective. Like I was laying there all like hormonal and emotional, like, give me my baby. I can't move. I can't reach him. And I never forgot that um, feeling of willpower that I had where I was like, no, my mind is stronger than the drugs. I will move my legs, you know, and I couldn't. And it definitely has made me think of people with all sorts of different things of paralysis or, you know, like you said, limb loss or prosthetics and the mind control that you have to have the self-discipline in your mind is what I mean by that mind control. Like just, you have to be so strong strong-minded and strong-willed to fight for those connections, I guess. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think even, even if you have the strongest willpower in some situations, like with certain spinal cord injuries, there's no overcoming that, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We have this human participant I just mentioned who has had a spinal cord injury for a really long time. And I actually, I have been trying to finish up my PhD. So I've been focused on the monkey work and hadn't met him yet. There were other people in the lab who were working with him and doing experiments, but I just met him on Wednesday of last week. And we had a really fascinating conversation about how, and I'm not sure why this is, I can't even really speak to the science of it. (laughs) None of us really know why this would be true, but, but he was talking about how the moment he had the surgery where we put the electrodes in, which this is not like, we can stimulate his sensory cortex from a computer, but it's not connected to a bionic hand yet. Like this is not, it's not like he's going about his daily life and feeling stimulation. It's only when he's in the lab when we provide Mm -hmm. it. But basically from the first time we stimulated, he said for the first time since 1986, he could like shave again, which he hadn't been able to do with his own like innate hand, right? And so he has some mobility still and could feel a little bit, but he's like, it used to be that if I would lift my hand up here, it would just close and I couldn't really do anything. He's like, but ever since we did the surgery, I can shave. And I, I do wonder, I think there's gotta be some like neurobiological stuff going on, but I also think there must be like so much hope and excitement about yeah. restored function that like you're mm-hmm. talking about willpower. I think part of that was at play there. And it's just incredible, like for decades mm-hmm. to have lost this function of your daily life. That's really important. And suddenly you're like, oh yeah. And I'm shaving again. <laughs> I mean, that's just incredible. 
Like, but I, and, and you're right. And then there's some of those nerves or neuro connections that, that won't be able to connect, you know, to be used. And so what you're doing, I mean, that's just, I mean, that's such fascinating work and I can only imagine how rewarding it can be to see when you do get to work with the humans, to see the benefits that they're, that they're feeling. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's incredible. Yeah. It's, it, it really, I mean, I've been more excited about the PhD ever since knowing when I was going to graduate, but really talking to him last week was a good reminder of just like why we do all of this. And oh, that's wonderful. See, you never know when someone's going to make an impact. And oh yeah, I, this is, I mean, on topic, but off topic, but whenever I think of stuff like this, I just think of like where the future can be. Cause like you said, like we know so much with science, but yet there's so much we don't know. And it's crazy how much we don't know about the brain. And I always think of like the Marvel movies and my son and I have been binge watching the Marvel movies lately. So it's very fresh in my mind, but they do all this stuff. Like they were, they were holding up like a hologram of like the brain and you could watch the like neuro pathways. And I was like, imagine when we can do that, you know, in real life yeah, like that. And, and, you know, go in and pinpoint and target to change something like you're talking about with a sense or addiction. I mean, that's just, it's going to be really cool. I hope that happens in our lifetimes because I I just think that would be amazing to see. And whenever I watch those movies, I just am like, that could happen, you know? (laughs) Yeah. I like the scientist in me is like very skeptical that that will happen. Yeah. that would be so cool. I mean, yes. <laughs> dream. Yeah. Right? We like, we talk a lot about the theoretical limits of like how much of the brain could you actually monitor at any given time? Cause like a lot of what we do, like what I do every day is I put electrodes into the monkey's brain. And so it's like a thin wire that I insert that has a few different contact points on it. So I can watch activity along 16 different points on this wire in his brain. And they're all really close to each other. So they'll all be like within one small brain area. And that like recording from 16 different channels is not like the highest tech, but relatively high tech. Like that was kind of unheard of when I started in this field. Now people can monitor hundreds of neurons at a time, but still compared to how many neurons you have in your brain, it's a tiny sample, right? Mm -hmm. So we talk about theoretical limits, like, well, what if you could put this really dense array into the whole brain? How much, how much of the brain would still be alive if you were like spearing it that many times? Like you can't, you can't really do that. Or there's other ways of imaging brain activity where essentially cells do light up and you can record that, but you need to have a microscope that's like right on those cells. And so there's all these technical limitations where like, I totally agree. It would be amazing if we could watch the entire brain at once. Mm-hmm. And that, I mean, that is really every neuroscientist dream. We could solve like everything. <laughs> yeah. But unfortunately we're stuck trying to record from just a few cells at a time. So mm-hmm. maybe, maybe one day, probably not in our lifetime, but maybe in the next generation's lifetime. <laughs> yeah. Cool. I mean, you never know, you know, yeah. back in like the eighties when they were doing back to the future and they thought we were like going to be in flying cars at this point, And we're not, yeah. <laughs> I'm obviously watching too many movies lately, <laughs> only referring to movies. I do have a life. <laughs> movies are great. <laughs> yeah. So Katie, can you talk a little bit about your project that you got the ARI grant for and how that sort of relates, but also doesn't relate to the work you're doing with your PhD? 
Of course. Yeah. So uh, a few years ago now, probably three years ago, I want to say, there was a physician, an OB-GYN physician at UChicago who approached our lab, having heard about the kind of work we do with spinal cord injury patients. And she said, hey, listen, I have all of these women that I work with who have undergone mastectomy, which is having your breast or both breasts removed either to treat cancer or to prevent it if people know they have a genetic risk. And she said, a lot of them, they like the way that their breasts look after surgery, but they go on to have really severe sexual dysfunction because something that a lot of women don't realize when they get a mastectomy or they hear it, but they don't realize what it's going to feel like, kind of like what we were talking about where you don't, you don't realize how important sensation is until your mouth is numb, right? Mm-hmm. You don't realize that their breasts are going to be entirely numb because all of the nerves are severed that innervate your chest wall. And so suddenly you're left with these breasts that you can't feel anything on. And I've sat in a couple of meetings with patients where they talk about like things that I wouldn't have even thought of. Like we, we were focusing initially on the sexual dysfunction piece because that part felt intuitive, right? Like, okay, so you have no sensation in your breast or nipple. So you go on to have sexual dysfunction. I could see how that would be. And they were like, yeah, I mean, that's part of it. But like, I can't feel if I wear a low cut shirt, I can't feel if my breasts have fallen out. I have to constantly look down to see where my shirt sits on my chest or like I hug my children and it feels really weird. I don't feel anything. And that's a reminder of this surgery and this like traumatic life experience in some cases. And so when women start talking about all the ways in which this like this lack of sensation in their breasts impacts our lives, you start to realize like, wow, I, I don't often think about my breast sensation except in like a few contexts, but the lack of it mm-hmm. is, is a constant reminder, right? Like you, you notice how different it feels, how those breasts don't feel like your own. So this physician, her name is Stacy Lindau. Um, she's awesome. She like always wants to hear patients' stories. And so her whole thing was wanting to bring patients alongside of like scientists and epidemiologists and everybody involved in this to try to figure out what can we do? Like, can we bring people like our lab on who can try to restore sensation and what aspects of that sensation might matter? Um, And so my boss, who is a man and who is also very busy with all of the stuff that he does was like, I really don't necessarily want to be the boob guy, but I want this project to be done. And so uh, I, it was, I felt really lucky to be like a more senior grad student at that time mm-hmm. who also was really interested in this project. Um, so I've sort of taken the lead on the sensory side of things. And so what we realized pretty early on was we, we set out to have to develop a device that could interface with the nerves of the chest and it could sit right on top of an implant if somebody got an implant or just on the chest wall if somebody didn't. So beneath the skin. And we wanted to have a sensor that was skin-like that could feel when it was being touched and relay like those forces to some sort of stimulator that would connect with the nerve and the person would feel it as if it was their own, right? That, that was the ultimate goal at the start. And that's still what we're working toward, but uh, working in a lab that focuses on the hand, we thought, I'm sure a lot is known about these nerves. Like we know a lot about nerves. We've been, we've had human specimens forever. Like we didn't anticipate how little was actually known about breast sensation. And I think, I think it's a variety of things that contributed to that. One being that I think just in general, I don't just think this, this is true. Women tend to be understudied. And so breasts being very specific to women just weren't a major focus. I think also the fact that, uh, 
breast sensation is often tied to conversations about sexual arousal. And in general, that is pretty taboo in the field or has been historically, like there just wasn't a lot about it. Um, and then it's also pretty difficult to study like sexual arousal and the sensations because you're trying to create a lab environment where somebody could become aroused and quantify that. And so there are certain like physiological measures you can take, but in terms of recording from the nerves and things like that, it's, it is logistically challenging. So there was basically nothing about sensation in the breast. There were some sensory tests that people would do just to show that sensation was lost after like different kinds of breast surgeries, whether augmentation or reduction or mastectomy. I mean, the breast surgery literature has focused a little bit on it, but what we're interested in is like exactly what kind of receptors in the skin are responsible, like exactly what frequencies of vibration and forces and all of this, are they sensitive to? What is their pattern of response? The, ner the nerves themselves, like what is their pattern of response to things? How does that change in different contexts? And all of that was, there was just nothing. Mm -hmm. And so I'll never forget, we, there's this annual conference for all of neuroscience that takes place obviously once a year and like everybody comes. And usually when I present posters about what our lab does, a lot of people come visit, people will challenge you on things. It feels like what you would imagine a scientific mm -hmm. meeting to be, right? And I presented a poster on our breast project thinking this is going to be perfect. I really want to hear what other people think about this. I'm sure other people have started to look into this at least somewhat. I mean, it's a big field in general. Mm -hmm. And a couple people came up and both, like one of them said, uh, I like have experience with breast surgery. And so I was just interested in what you found. Just wanted to hear, like, didn't, didn't have any real like scientific experience with it. Just had a personal experience and wanted to hear what I had to say. And then a couple of people came up and were just like, oh, I don't, I don't know anything about this. Can you tell me that nobody came up and was like, oh, actually, have you considered like nobody yeah. had anything else to say? Mm -hmm. And so there was one woman who visited who said, like, you know, I, I'm thinking about studying erogenous touch. I'm starting up a lab. Maybe we can chat about this. So that was great. But there was still nobody was like, oh, actually, this paper from whenever challenges what you're saying or like this method would have been better. There's there's really no interest in it right now, it seems like. Um, so it's been it's been really cool being a lab that is like a major leader in studying hand sensation to be able to apply all those same techniques and build new rigs and start to really try to understand like, what do the nerves in the breast do? Mm -hmm. What aspect of that is important to people's experiences? Um, yeah. So it's, it's been awesome working on it. And I'm really glad that, that Ari was excited about it too. And that like Ari's help with this came at a perfect time because we were just wrapping up one grant and we had this sort of strange period in between where right now we're applying for a major like five-year grant, which we were able to get a bunch of data to try to like set the path for Awesome. That. Yeah. See, that's huge too. Yeah. So do you guys study and research, like you were saying, to find out the sensations that the breast needs? Do you study normal breasts, I say, uninterfered yeah. with breasts? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, so we... There are like two, actually, there are three major components to this project. Um, ours is trying to understand like healthy, intact sensation. And for right now, that's the most important thing. And so 
Another part of the lab is Stacy Lindau's part where she's working with patients and trying to quantify, like one part of it was trying to create, a, like identify the link between sensation and sexual function because that hadn't really been well established, even though it felt intuitive. And so she, she found that, and she surveys women who have had mastectomy or no mastectomy, unilateral, bilateral, everything, trying to identify all the factors that might play a role in people's quality of life following mastectomy. Um, and then there's another lab that's developing that sensor sheet. So that's like materials engineering that's way beyond my understanding, but it's helpful, like knowing what patients want, you know, what they're, what they identify as things that they lose during mastectomy and like how many of them we're trying to figure out, does everybody need a bionic breast device or is it certain people who are more prone to, to feeling complete lack of sensation? Cause some people have some restored sensation over time. Um, there's also like differing amounts of chronic pain that people develop because when you sever nerves, people often develop chronic pain. So part of our hope with this is that that won't happen if you're stimulating those same nerves. The way I often describe this is like, if you cut a nerve, it doesn't know what to do anymore. It doesn't have its input. And so it just sort of fires whenever, and it can cause this increase in pain just because it's, there's no like actual job for that nerve to do anymore. So if we can mm -hmm. stimulate the parts of the nerve that are responsible for actual sensation that should hopefully gate the pain and prevent that. So trying to identify people who might benefit from that. So anyway, so Stacy's lab focuses on people who have had mastectomy. Our lab is focusing on healthy women for now. And if we get this grant, then we'll focus on uh, actually stimulating nerves in people who are currently undergoing mastectomy. And part of our goal is we have to understand what the breast is supposed to do in a healthy intact woman in order for the materials engineering lab to actually design a sensor that makes sense. Like if they make mm -hmm. something that's too sensitive, that's over engineering on their part. Right. And it turns out like <laughs> I have thought way too much about breast sensation, but the nipple is pretty sensitive. I think most people expect that the areola is like not sensitive at all. So mm -hmm. you can, we've done a lot of studies where we like, poke people with something that's not sharp at all, but we poke people and ask them essentially to rate if two things are close to each other. Um, and if you poke the areola, often people are like, oh, did you, did you poke me? Mm -hmm. <laughs> they can't even feel it. So like having a sensor that's sensitive under the areola would be a waste, for example. So that's kind of how the three, our three different labs come together. See, I find that so interesting yeah. because I breastfed for a year and a half and I like lost complete sensation for a while, like, but it was mostly from kind of like the, the areola mostly where I was just like, I, you know, I could definitely feel the latching on and everything, but it got to where it was just desensitized, I guess, you know, from the beginning. And so, and I found that to just be really interesting. Like, I just remember being like, I just can't hardly feel if he's, you know, biting me anymore. You know, he didn't bite very much anyway, but it was not until... I don't know, probably two, maybe even three years later that I kind of like regained some sensation, you know, in a arousal kind of way where I was like, oh, wait, where'd that come from? And it was like years. Wow. And so, I mean, I've obviously this is not the same experience whatsoever with the kind of people that you're working with, but it, it was a really interesting thing to notice. And so, I can imagine, like, there's a lot of sensations. I mean, even all of the nerves and the sensations with the skin and touch around the area of the breast that get, I, I want to say, like, awoken in a way when breastfeeding. 
you know, because of the way that children or babies latch on. And then even like, I remember my mom was a midwife and she was an acupuncturist. And, um, I remember that my son as a baby would be latched on and his hand would always like, kind of like want to caress the cleavage. And I, and he would sometimes pull up my shirt, you know, or like a necklace or something. And I remember when he was really little and I was like, you know, kind of like stop that or something. And my mom was like, no, 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 no. Don't tell him to stop that because he's stimulating the milk, the breast milk. And she was like, that touch is part of that stimulating. And she had to have been right because I stimulated like double cream freaking breast milk. Like I had, I was full. (laughs) And I never forgot that because- that was super early on, you know, when he was just beyond newborn. And it it did make me think, gosh, everything here is connected to that, like mother earth, what women and breasts are for and that connection and, you know, leading back generations and generations of just how to stimulate the milk naturally and babies know what to do in that touch. So I'm super fascinated about all the kind of research that you're going to find and that you are finding because like you said, they, the breasts are understudied and they're complex. Yeah. Yeah, We we've actually just excluded anybody who is like currently pregnant or breastfeeding Mm -hmm. because of that complexity. But having only talked really to patients either to like women who we haven't excluded or to patients who have undergone mastectomy, I haven't had this conversation before, which That's really fascinating. I think like part of what we want to do is see how arousal changes everything. Um, And that's complicated enough, but I think actually looking at like the oxytocin release and what's going on in breastfeeding mothers where the breasts take on a totally different role. Right. You can imagine that a lot of the sensation in the breast is specialized for that purpose. Mm -hmm. And we're not even getting at that with like kinds of acids. Specialized at that purpose. And it's almost like a, like any kind of arousal is like turned off. It's like, you don't, you know, when you're breastfeeding, there's, that's not even on the radar. So if you're having a sexual encounter with someone sucking on your nipple, it's nothing the same. It's weird. It's like, it's, they're just completely, they just target a completely different area, obviously of the brain. It's gotta be, yeah. I mean, or the way the hormones are released, like you said. And so I, I loved breastfeeding. It was one of my most favorite parts so far of being a mom. I since 12, it was a long time ago but it was something that stayed with me. And I did notice those little subtle things that are actually kind of big. And I guess talking about rest and sensation, it's reminded me of all those, those things. Wow. That is so interesting. And it's interesting that it came back, that it really was. I know. It was, just- it was like two or three years. Like I said, it was just like, meh, boobs or boobs, you know? And then it was kind of like, yeah, one time was, you know, fooling around. And I was like, uh, wait a second, that feels good. What? You know? And then it was just like, good to go after that. Wow. You may have just opened up a whole new branch of science. (laughs) How fun would that be? I can see Katie, you're like, your brain is just starting to think. (laughs) And I'm like, yep, there, there goes the science brain. Okay. So why? What? Hmm." Yeah. The why, (laughs) you know, I mean, and that's where like, And on our show, we've talked quite a bit about like, just because it's our show or whatever about my mom and her medical background. And, um, she, she had a doctorate from Oxford university in ethnomedical anthropology. And yeah, she definitely studied and talked about like, 
I was just around it in my house growing up of just talking about all the different connections with everything that is science, bodies, mind, spirit, whatever, everything. And so, you know, when she had told me that just that little thing of his hand kind of like, you know, caressing my cleavage, I, I was just like, well, yeah, that's fact, you know, like that makes sense. Of course it would stimulate the milk. And I just didn't even really question it, even though I was kind of like, well, why? But to me, I would just think the body, especially a women's body, a woman's body is designed for their young in a way. And if it didn't have these little cues to help keep the young going, (laughs) we wouldn't be here now. (laughs) And, um, so I do, like I said, Chelsea and I are, we are not, we do not have our PhDs, but we're both nerds (laughs) in our own rights. And, uh, so I, I would definitely be curious, you know, if that little bit of conversation makes, makes things like Chelsea said, thoughtful about just the sensation, of the area. And I mean, you're right. Like that hormonal release of course would affect the brain pathways and stuff, wouldn't it? And sensing and neurons and all that. Yeah. I mean, I think that's just another example similar to arousal where like context completely shapes your sensitivity. And it's very interesting because like there is some hormonal modulation of sensitivity throughout your entire body. So it's clear like estrogen can play a role in making even your hand or your lips more sensitive at certain times during your cycle and things like that, like hormonal control can affect everything. Um, But we really thought like, there's gotta be contextual modulation. It's not like I walk around all day and like my shirt is causing me to be aroused or like my bra Mm -hmm. rubs again. Like I'm, it doesn't feel arousing if it's not the right context. And we don't really know (laughs) why that is, how that works. Um, just to come like kind of full circle. I think looking forward into like what I want to study once I finish up school and all of that, like what kind of lab I want to have, I think bringing together the affective components of addiction research where it's like all these really significant individual differences and sensation, like looking into specifically erogenous sensation and also to some degree like pain. And now I guess maybe even like breast sensation during (laughs) breastfeeding, right? And like these different phases of a woman's life. Um, I just, I think it would be fascinating bringing those things together because it is so central to the human experience. Like yeah. studying sensation in the hand is fascinating because it's so important and you can like look down at your own hand and be like, wow, yeah, like I can feel that that is smooth and I can grip it just the right amount. Like there's, it's intellectually fascinating. Yes. But I have not been as excited about anything as like thinking about my own breast and being like, wow, there is no answer to this question yet. So every person who shares their experience that like actually weighs into our understanding of this, like that really shapes what questions we ask because, because no one's really documenting this well. Yeah. Right. Or like the things that have been documented, like I'm sure that your mom knew a lot about like how that kind of contact might increase milk release and things like that. Mm -hmm. And and I'm sure that exists in the literature, but these things are so disjointed that it's not like science is focused on exactly what the nerves are doing when this is happening. Like my guess is that probably fits into like endocrinology where people are studying like specifically oxytocin release and things like that. And so the neuroscience community starts from square one and has to like look into all these different fields. So it's just really helpful talking to different people, hearing their experience, things that they've heard. You're right. And it would get separated and it, it, yeah, that makes sense that it could go to endocrinology because it's like, all that, you know, I say recent in quotes, research about the skin on skin contact for newborns and mothers and where that research in itself has come. And 
it is incredibly exciting about where you are. Cause like you said, you are, there's so many questions unanswered and how fun is that for science? You know, you're kind of in like the, is it the forefront of like, is that the right word I want to use for like ground, groundbreaking stuff? I hope so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think so. I mean, listening to these projects that you're working on, Katie, it makes me think not only about how it can be applied for people that have had mastectomies or maybe you've had some other trauma that have lost that sensation or they're having chronic pain, but I feel like the information that you can learn and the research that you'll gain from like this very specific topic will be able to be applied other places um, on the body. And so like you mentioned, there's tons of research about the hand because hands are really important to, I guess, our lives and uh, Mm -hmm. being able to function. Like have people looked at like feet or knees or hips or shoulders and like the same way and how can that relate to maybe helping someone else's quality of life that like we just don't know about yet. And I'm really interested in like how the chronic pain information that you'll kind of gain. Cause I mean, a ton of people have chronic pain for a whole host of reasons. And maybe the research that you're doing won't help everyone's chronic pain, but at least maybe it would help understand on a neurological level, what's going on and what are some more treatment options besides just always sticking these bigger devices that are supposed Mm -hmm. to stimulate nerves that may or may not, because we just don't have all of the knowledge about how those nerves are supposed to function and what their, Mm -hmm. their job is and all of that. I just think it's, fascinating what you're learning and then how that'll continue to kind of ripple into other areas as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I started neuroscience, like fascinated with the complexity of the brain and then still fascinating, but like, as time has gone on, I've come to really appreciate like studying the nerves where it's, it's not as complex of a system, but you can actually think about a lot of different treatments for people with like many different kinds of conditions because you're not dealing with this, like, super complicated mm-hmm. thing that you like, you can't really access, right? You don't want to go into somebody's brain if you don't absolutely have to. Mm-hmm. Whereas like the nerves are much more accessible and there are all kinds of like chronic pain treatments where people stimulate the nerves, but you're right. Like we're not exactly sure what that's mm-hmm. doing or who that, who specifically that's going to help. And so it is really cool studying that where like, it seems like the solutions are a little more tractable when you're, when you're working yeah. with nerves and not with like a whole brain. Well, even like you said, with, the studies that you're doing, knowing that women who have mastectomies and those nerves are severed and you're realizing that that little bit of stimulation could help the chronic pain. Yeah. That's, that's huge. And Chelsea and I 100% agree. Women are understudied as a whole. Yeah. It wasn't until something like 1960 that women could be allowed into a bunch of medical trials, which was shocking to learn. Right. Because it's too, it's too complex. To add another sex in, we're just going to focus on men. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. But then we're going to apply the results that we learned about men to women too, because that makes sense. It's too right. complex to have two sexes <laughs> yeah. in yeah. your studies, but we're just going to blanket apply the results. Super logical. <laughs> I'm actually oh. really glad that your boss had too much on his plate, you know, and kind of was like, I can't be the boob guy. You be the boob girl instead. Well, because you, you are going to know being a woman you, I don't want to be sexist, but you are going to know because of experience, just a little bit more of the complexity of the breast touch. I, I was going to say the same thing. I had that same thought when you I mentioned, don't be, and I'm not sexist. Like, I'm sure he's a wonderful guy and I'm love that he was so supportive of it, but there is something about like allowing someone who 
understands that experience. Not that you've had a mastectomy or anything, but like you're a, you're a woman, you have breasts, like you have that level of experience that like he doesn't. And I think that that's great that he's like, I really want to be supportive of this, but I shouldn't be the one to lead. I wish that there was more people out there that were like, Hey, this is not my area of expertise. Well, let me allow other people to step forward. I think that's awesome. Yeah. He's definitely a great mentor in that. Like he's still, I mean, he's still overseeing all of the science, right? He didn't just like Mm -hmm. throw me in the deep end and say, good luck, like figure it out. Yeah. But but he does say like, I mean, how does that feel? Like he knows that he can't yeah. imagine what that would be like. Yeah. I, I actually have on my desk. So part of what we do is we have to like take photos of the things that we're doing and stuff. And I realized like we're mostly just because of COVID, we're mostly studying women in any of the groups that I mentioned that are working on this project. So I can't like send him photos or videos of any of our breasts. That just doesn't like really feel appropriate. Yeah. So I have this like fake boob on my desk. <laughs> That I like use for all of our like testing just to make sure that things are working right. And so obviously like we found ways to keep him involved and stuff like that. But I am really thankful that he's thought about like, you know, how can I help pave a way for you to have a career focused on what you're interested in, where your experiences are like potentially more relevant, but he's still like, I mean, he knows. Involved. Yeah. I just love that you have a boob on your desk. That's awesome. (laughs) I think that's really cool. A little paperweight. You know, yeah, it's, it's actually like really squishy and very fun to play with. And like, so like is it ends up being like a stress ball because that's what I would use it for. I'd be like, ooh, this is fun. <laughs> yeah, that's that's super fun. I mean, <laughs> this this whole project is interesting. And just for because we we get so many different listeners and everything, I am just really curious. Do you know what the percentage is or if there's a percentage of um women who just get implants, do they still retain a lot of their senses? Does a lot of it go away, you know, because that's more like under all of the tissue, but you know, you mean not in the case of a mastectomy, just breast augmentation. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know the percentages. I do know Mm -hmm. that when you're, so breast surgeons have actually focused a lot on not removing sensation if they don't have to. Mm -hmm. Right. So if you are doing a procedure that's technically elective, whether it's reduction or augmentation, they, they do try to find the nerves and make sure they spare them and especially yeah. for the nipple. So it's not nearly as big of a problem for breast surgery as it is for mastectomy where what they're weighing is, do we want to preserve your sensation or do we want to make sure there's no tissue there that could ever develop yeah. cancer? Yeah. Um, so I think like it's, it's kind of a conflict in the thinking that like people talk about mastectomy, not as an amputation. Like they don't, yeah. they don't, I mean, it really is an amputation. You're really right. like, cutting off a part of the body, but they talk about it like, oh, it's great. Like people like how they look, the sensation's fine. But that that same field is very aware that if they can preserve sensation, they should do everything in their power to do so. Good. Um, I do know that usually people who get breast reduction surgeries have a marked improvement in sensation. Oh, that's interesting. And I don't know that the opposite is true that I kind of expect it would be that you'd have not mm-hmm. a lack of sensation, but just generally like more diffuse sensation mm-hmm. if you had an augmentation. Um, but that's actually just true of women in general with breasts of different sizes. It's something that we found and that has actually been documented in the past. Like it tends to be the case that the larger your breasts are, the less sensitive they are. Gosh, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think this is so like, you're going to, this is so, this is so cool. And like you said, there's such little out there in the grand scheme of things of research that you guys really are going to be, you know, groundbreaking 
with so much of this, which is really exciting. Thanks. Yeah. It's, it's been really rewarding working on it in large part, just like talking to women about their experiences. Like that's yeah. like my favorite part about it is cause I just haven't really talked about breasts that much throughout my life. And now yeah. I talk about it like every day with people and it's, it's fascinating hearing what people have to say. Yeah. That's, that's really fun. I mean, yeah, because women don't really go around, you know, talking about their breasts. Yeah, yeah. that's true. Well, that's, that's exciting. I mean, I'm really glad that we got to chat with you about all of this because it sheds a whole new light on, I don't know, freaking everything. And just thinking about, like you said, like the amount that you're using to pick up a glass, the amount of strength that you're using in your hand. And I don't know, like we are so tactile as, as humans, you know, I walk through a store and if something looks remotely soft, I touch it. (laughs) Yeah. And so the, the thought of that, I don't know, like, it's just really, it's really interesting. I, I, I'm, I'm appreciative for hearing that perspective just for us to be more mindful in our Mm -hmm. everyday lives. And even for that kind of gratitude that one has to practice of like, I am grateful for the softness of this object or, you know, as a grounding experience, I know that they say if you're suffering from like anxiety or something, just bringing yourself down to like, I can touch this blanket. This desk is hard. You know, this feels I'm touching wood now and it's like varnished, you know, and, but it, it it's grounding. And so the thinking of people not having those senses or trying to rebuild those senses and the emotional effects that come with that. It's really fascinating to me. Yeah. Am I making sense? I feel like I'm getting really yes. like out there. Okay. No, you make perfect sense. We we test, we do a lot of like human, it's called psychophysics, which is just where we have people like rate the softness of this texture or like rate the position of your fingers, things like that. Things where people have to focus on what they're feeling in their hands. And these tests take like an hour to two hours of them just thinking about like, what am I feeling right now? And people Mm -hmm. are always commenting like, wow, I feel so relaxed. And I really think it's meditation. Yeah, You're just canceling everything else out and just focusing on how you feel. Like that's your body interacting with our stimulators, whatever they may be. And it is definitely very helpful. Like I, I think about it all the time. Like you're right. I can just touch this desk and I know how it feels. I feel its edge. I feel its texture. And all of that is very grounding for sure. Yeah, it's grounding. And it's like when how they talk about, you know, even touching your food and smelling your food and yeah. looking at your food. And how would you describe your food then eating it? Or even like earthing where you go outside, take your shoes off and put your feet in the grass. And like how often anymore as humans really do we do that walking around barefoot in the grass and feeling what that's like? And it is important and it is grounding and it does in a sense, like exercise those senses, just like Chelsea was saying, to be aware of our feet and what our feet can feel and, you know, or rolling around in the prickly glass and it's grass and it's like, oh, you know, my back is itchy or so. I don't know. It's just, I think as humans, we don't do that as much. We don't explore the senses as much. That having been said, there's obviously this, this whole new wave of mindfulness Um, and awareness being brought out. And I I agree. I can imagine that that would be really meditative for people. And just out of curious, when they are doing those tests, I'm assuming that they basically have their other senses uh, that stopped or whatever, like like it's dark or something, or they can't see, right? Um, It kind of depends on the task. We don't always blindfold subjects, but they can't see what they're feeling. Like we at least block that site. And then we have them listening to white noise or at least Mm -hmm. noise canceling headphones. 
And so, yeah, I mean, it's, I think people are just inherently motivated to do well on these tasks. And so they, mm-hmm. they're pretty good at not paying attention to what they're seeing anyway. Okay. Uh, so now I have another question. <laughs> I feel like I really hijacked this call and I'm so sorry, but I, so fun. <laughs> okay, good. Um, so do you know anything about like the neuroscience that's going on with these like sensory deprivation float tanks? I don't like, actually. Okay. Cause I'm, I'm really interested about that because I'm terrified of them. <laughs> like to me, that doesn't sound soothing, which makes me feel like I should do it from everything I've read about them. But, um, maybe that's the angle that I should look up about them as people who are doing maybe like that neuroscience studies of before and after someone goes in and all those senses being deprivated, you know, deprivation yeah. tank, deprivated. Yeah. Deprived. Depri- thank you. I'm like, <laughs> deprivated is not a word, but yes, deprived. Thank you. Because that is supposed to be where like your skin chills out because the temperature is the same as the body, the water. And then you're not having to feel for like weight or gravity or whatever, because you're floating. It's sensory deprivation, you know? And so I've just been a little bit fascinated at how that's soothing for the mind, but that might be just because I'm such a tactile person. So I was just curious if you knew anything as a neuroscientist about that. I, I don't. It's it's interesting you mentioned that because, so I didn't really talk at all about like what my PhD dissertation is on, but I focus on texture perception in a higher brain area. And by that, I mean, it's, it's a brain area that would really only respond if you were thinking about what you were feeling. So like right now, there's a part of your brain, and this is what we would interface with for like people with spinal cord injuries. There's a part of your brain that can feel that your sweater is touching you and that your headphone isn't like all of that is always being tracked by these lower level brain areas. And so I would think like in sensory deprivation, they're blocking even that, right? Like all of this lower, lower brain activity. Whereas your conscious perception, you have not felt your headphones since the last time you touched them. Like you're not getting this constant reminder of like, Oh, my headphones in my ear. Oh, my headphones. Right. Like our brains silence all of that when it's, these higher brain areas that are filtering things out and just focusing on what you want to focus on. So like right now, as you're sitting there, you can think like, I want to think about how my knee feels like, are my pants loose or tight? Is my knee comfortable? Like you can go through every part of your body that way. And so you can sort of like shine a spotlight on these lower brain areas, like with the, all of the information that's coming in. And so part of me feels like, well, with sensory deprivation, like your brain is pretty good at shutting things off. Like you could do Shavasana and like, pay attention to how everything feels and then sort of just ignore it. Right. And just mm-hmm. not, not think anymore about how everything feels, but it is true that those brain areas, like part of your brain is always tracking everything because the moment you want to think about it, you can access that. It's not like your brain has to be like, Oh, okay. Uh, it feels like, like it's that all that information is already there. So I would guess though, a sensory deprivation, it would be helpful to just have all of that silenced, but yeah. But it's also the case, though, that I, I think you could probably feel if you wanted to. It's not like yeah, like you would notice that the the water is the same temperature mm-hmm. as your skin. Like that you could make like a ripple or something just by moving. Yeah, exactly. but that makes sense that it's a more more encouraged slash forced way of like turning off all the noise, right? That we can't sure. always do in our brains. Yeah, yeah. Chelsea, do you have other questions? I know that you were taking notes and I know that we're wrapping up our time and I feel like I totally hijacked the conversation and I'm really sorry. No, I think Katie answered all the questions that I had. I just think that your project is so cool. 
I know when I was in school, like muscles and joints has always been my thing. And when we started adding in nerves, my brain was like, I don't understand. So the <laughs> fact that you're like, yeah, I understand like all these nerves and all this, I'm like props to you. My brain could <laughs> not handle that, but I do find it so fascinating. And I, so I didn't want to take a research track myself because I don't like doing research, but research is very, very important. So I highly, th- I guess, th- I don't know what I was trying to say. I very much thank you for doing what you do because that information is so valuable. And I love being able to read the research that other people do. That's my favorite thing about research. It's yeah. like, yes, yeah, someone else can do it. And then I want to learn from it. That That's what I want. So Katie, thank <laughs> you for doing what you're doing and for also applying that to an area that was not getting attention before with these women that were having mastectomies. And I mean, that's not mm-hmm. something I would have thought of at all, but yeah, it's an issue. It's there. And so I think it's awesome that science and your team is working on it. Thanks. Yay, science. Yeah, Bye. yay, science. <laughs> So Katie, where can our listeners connect with you on the internet if they want to learn more about you or learn more about your project? Where can they find you? Yeah. Um, I, to be honest, I'm not like super active online just because I've really been trying to just get this PhD. I've like blocked <laughs> everything else out. That said, uh, our lab has a website that has a lot of information about the projects that we do. So I'm going to say it, but it's not going to be obvious how to spell it. So I'll spell it too. If you go to bensmayalab.org, which is B-E-N-S-M-A-I-A lab, L-A-B.org, you can get more information on the different projects our lab is doing, as well as find my contact information and my uh, like scientific mentor, Sleeman Benzmea. And I'm also on Instagram. If you want to connect with me there, I don't post a lot and I definitely don't really post about this project, but I always respond to DMs. So you're, you're more than welcome to reach out. So my Instagram handle is K-T-H-L-O-N-G. Yay. (laughs) Yay. Maybe so much good luck to you when it comes to finishing your dissertation, because that sounds like a lot. (laughs) And I'm just very impressed with people. Like I barely wanted to do a thesis. I did actually kind of got out of doing thesis. So <laughs> that's how much I didn't want to do it. The fact that you're like putting all that work into it. So impressed. So much good luck. Thank you. You're so almost much. there. Yeah. You're so close. That you is the best it. part of it. It's almost over. I can do anything knowing that the end is like very near. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. The light is there. Right. Well, good luck, Katie. Thank you so much for talking with us. Thanks. It was great chatting with both of you. I'm really excited to hear your episode on the podcast as well. (laughs) Yay. We will definitely record that because it hasn't (laughs) happened yet. Thanks for listening. If you love this podcast and want to show your support, please leave a review, share the podcast with others, or join us in the Spoonie Hub. If you'd like to connect with Cassie and I, you can find us on Instagram at The Real Spoonies Unite or on our website, mywellnesshub.co, where you can find all sorts of resources and you can find the Spoonie Hub. Talk to you soon.